Today marks the beginning of Advent, and Advent is a season the church throughout the last 2,000 years has set aside uh, traditionally to reflect and to prepare ourselves for the great news and the great gift that comes with what we celebrate on Christmas. And so Advent, it's a season in the church, and it's kind of like the season of Christmas, but it's a deeper season in the sense that it's a season of longing and preparing our hearts and our minds and reminding ourselves of, of our need and how we need God to step into our lives. And so there are all sorts of things that kind of come into this season that make the Christmas season up, and we're in kind of full-on Christmas mode now. And there are all sorts of things we associate with Christmas, right? Right? Christmas music, Christmas lights, Advent calendars. Some of you, it's the red cup at Starbucks that you get very excited about. Some of you, uh, less sanctified people, it's eggnog, uh, and you enjoy pouring that. There are all sorts of things that we associate with this season, but there are also all sorts of people that we associate with this season when we think about Christmas. Of course, there's Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus. I think we have the nativity scene. Uh, that's That's a person and people that we associate. There's the big man himself, Santa Claus. There's Ebenezer Scrooge. There's Jimmy Stewart and It's a Wonderful Life. For some of you, it's the Grinch. Yeah, and the real Grinch, not that mockery of the Grinch that Jim Carrey did, uh, that weird distortion that was awful. Um, for our family, that it's Will Ferrell. Uh, in particular, our kids love Elf and my favorite of all, this is who I associate with Christmas, Ralphie and Randy. Um, I love that movie. We, we all have these associations. We all have these people that we think of when this season rolls around. But my guess is that not one of us, as we're listening to Tamar's story, associate her with Christmas. That when we think about Christmas, not one of us is like, oh yeah, that reminds me of Tamar and that really weird, bizarre story from Genesis 38. And so what I want to do with you this morning is I want to walk you through Tamar's story, very simply, walk through the text we just read. And then I want to show you how her story connects with Jesus' story and how their story connects with our story. And I really want to do this because, again, this is, this is just a very strange passage. It's, it's scandalous in a lot of ways. It's Gritty, it's messy, it's uncomfortable. When people have asked, what are you preaching this week? And I tell them, and they just kind of look at me, really? Uh, you're going to preach that. Because this story, uh, it throws some stuff in our face, and it throws kind of the ugliness of sin, and sometimes the ugliness of life, and it puts it right before us and forces us to deal with it. To understand Tamar's story, you have to know that her story is wrapped up in the story of a man named Judah. And Judah was the great-grandson of Abraham. And so he belongs to this very important family in the Bible that God made these very specific and particular promises to. And the promise is going to come through this man, Judah. But you have to understand, too, that Judah was not a good guy. He wasn't a good guy at all. First and foremost, he disobeyed God and betrayed his family by marrying an outsider, by marrying a Canaanite. And then through that Canaanite, Judah had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And so Judah, we get the sense that this guy doesn't really love God a whole lot, that he, he kind of plays fast and loose with God's commands. And as his boys are growing up, Judah says, I need to go find a wife for my firstborn, Ur. And so he goes in search of a wife, 
and he finds this girl, Tamar. And Tamar, at that point, was probably 14 years old. Um, she was an outsider in the community. There's probably a price that was paid to secure her, which actually signified she was being transferred from her family into this new family as she marries Judah's oldest son, Ur. And what we're told in Genesis 38, I think it's verse uh, 6, verse 7, that Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord put him to death. We're not told what he did wrong. We're just told he was not a good guy, and so God said, you're done. And so in that day, this is Tamar's husband. Uh, the, the law in that day, the custom was, if your husband died, that the widow would marry uh, the husband's brother. And the husband's brother was responsible for providing her with children and ensuring she would be cared for. You have to understand that women in that day, they it might be an overstatement to say they were viewed as second-class citizens. Like they were viewed as kind of on a completely different level than men. They couldn't work. They couldn't, for the most part, provide for themselves. That wasn't their place in culture. They were Their lives were entirely dependent upon men. And so when a woman's husband died, she could easily be out of luck. And it was the responsibility of her husband's family to take care of her to care of her and provide for her. And so after Ur dies, Judah fulfills the custom and he gives his second son of three, Onan, to Tamar. And like his brother Ur, Onan was not a good man either. Onan slept with Tamar and he used an old-fashioned form of birth control uh, to ensure that she'd never get pregnant. And you can read about it in verse 9. I'd read it to you, but I would blush. So I'm not going to read it to you from up front. Um, but this is significant because outwardly it seems like Onan is fulfilling his duty to Tamar, but he's actually not. He's not going to provide her with children. And so what's happening is this stigma's coming upon her that she can't get pregnant, even though you know she's been given two husbands now, and so obviously, everyone thinks there must be something wrong with her. God's punishing her or something for some sin in her life. Well, the Lord, we're told, he sees how Onan is using this poor girl, Tamar, for sex. And God puts him to death, just like his brother. So two out of three of Judah's sons have died uh, when they married Tamar. And so the custom would be then for Tamar to marry the third and final son of Judah, but Judah has his reservations. He looks at this and says, every time one of my boys gets near you, it, it goes really badly. And so we're told in verse 11 that Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. And so it seems like he's promising the son to her, but then when we read on, we see, no, no, no. He's just trying to wash his hands of her. For he thought, this is Judah, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. So Judah promises this third son, but he has no intention of ever fulfilling that promise. And he sends her back to her father's house just to try to get rid of her. I don't want to deal with you anymore. I don't want to deal with all the drama that you've brought in his mind into my family. And again, this is kind of hard for us to understand, but maybe not that hard, that Tamar is in just an absolutely awful position at this point, that she 
She's trapped in a very desperate situation. She's, the commentators say she's probably still a teenager at this point. And so she's 17 years old. She's been married twice. She's now a widow twice over. The one man in the world who's responsible for looking after her, that's Judah, wants nothing to do with her. She's stigmatized. She's probably never going to be able to get remarried. People don't tend to want to, in that culture, they wouldn't tend to want to marry a woman who's been divorced or widowed twice by the age of 17. Even if she did, by chance, find a potential husband, a potential suitor, she couldn't marry him because she was betrothed to Shelah, Judah's third son that Judah had no intention of ever giving her. And so she's 17, and her future just looks like a prison with no way forward. And what the text indicates is that she's kind of stuck in this prison of vulnerability and stigma for many years, maybe 20 years total. But we're told in verse 12, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. And so Tamar catches on. He's never going to come through on his promise. She gets word that Judah is coming to town, and she takes action. And you have to read between the lines a little bit here, but it's apparent that Tamar knows the kind of man that Judah is. She knows what her father-in-law is like. And she knows that he's no stranger to visiting prostitutes. And so when she hears that he's coming to town, she takes off her widow's clothes, which she's been wearing for years, she puts on a veil. She puts on clothes that would resemble that of a prostitute. And she places herself right in his path so that she might seduce him, her father-in-law, to sleep with her. You thought your Thanksgiving was weird, right? <laughs> Verse 15, we're told that when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me pledge, or will you give me something as a pledge until she, you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? She responded, Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. Now, what Tamar's asking for, this seal, uh, it was something that only a wealthy man would have, only a person of promise, and it was basically like a little cylinder with a stamp on the end that she would use as your kind of trademark, your insignia. It was something used to make contracts, and that seal would often have a cord that would attach it to someone's staff. All three of them usually would go together, and it was something very, very important, uh, and very, very identifiable. 
one of the commentators said that the modern day equivalent of what she's asking for is basically your wallet with your social security card and your driver's license in it. Now, Tamar wants these things not because she wants to make sure she gets paid, not because she desperately wants this goat that's promised to her. She wants these things because she wants to be vindicated. She's gotten a raw deal. The man who was supposed to care for her hasn't, and her life has been an absolute mess. So she takes it. They sleep together. She gets pregnant. Judah is completely unaware that this was his daughter-in-law that he was just with. And we're told that Judah left. Tabar took her veil off, put on her widow's clothes again. And then Judah, he really wanted to get his seal back because it's very important to him. So he sent a goat to Tamar by way of a friend. That friend comes to town. He's got the goat. And he starts asking around, hey, where's the prostitute that was at the shrine? And everyone says, there is no prostitute at the shrine. There's never been a prostitute at that shrine. The friend scratches his head and thinks, this is weird. He goes and tells Judah, hey, I can't find the prostitute. And Judah, he's like, well, then let's just drop it. I tried to pay her back. I don't want to become a laughingstock trying to hunt down a prostitute. And so after all of that happens, we're told in verse 24 that three months after that, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. And Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Now, what we see in Judah's heart here, uh, this, this tells us a couple of things. One, he was responsible for her, that he recognized that, you know, when she married into the family and he's the patriarch, he's supposed to care for her. But it also shows just unbelievable hypocrisy. He has no problem visiting a prostitute, but he hears his daughter-in-law is a prostitute. And he says she needs to be burned to death. And as she, so the men went and got her and were told in verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. And this is kind of just the dramatic moment in the story. I am pregnant by the man who owns thee, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. And so it comes to Judah and Judah recognizes, oh my, and all of a sudden, you know, he starts to realize what happened three months earlier. And he says, she was more righteous than I. He relents in wanting to put her to death. And Tamar's story ends with her having twin boys by way of her father-in-law. And then we never hear from her again. The end of the story. Strange text, right? This is one of those passages that's just, we look at and we wonder, why is this in the Bible? Like God was very deliberate. Why would he include this story? There had to be some, some other stories maybe. And really one of the things that the scholars of Genesis say is that this text, the story, it, it's really unnecessary. If you were reading Genesis, you could skip this chapter and not miss anything. Like it's almost just inserted in as this little story in the midst of the big story. It's unnecessary and it's just embarrassing because at every point in this text, someone is sinning in a big time shameful way. And so we read this as good Christians and we think, what's the moral of the story here? Who are we supposed to be like? You know? 
Like, which person are we supposed to emulate? Is this what biblical family values looks like when we say we're values voters? Like, what, what do we do with this? And this morning, I'm sure there are some of you that aren't just asking why in the world is this in the Bible. You're saying, why in the world are you talking about this story as we think about Christmas? And the answer is, because in the Gospel of Matthew, it was written about 2,000 years later, the first book in the New Testament, Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. And he lists something like 47 names in the genealogy. And for most of us, if you're like me, when you come to genealogies in the Bible, our eyes start to glaze over and we think this is boring, right? When are we going to get to something interesting, something fascinating, something, you know, with some action? But if you actually press in to Matthew's genealogy and you push through all those hard-to-pronounce names, you find something that is fascinating and that's deeply intriguing. You find that Matthew includes the names of five women in his genealogy. And this is really strange because in that day, women were, you know, 99.9% of the time, they were absolutely ignored in genealogies. All that mattered was the father and son. The only reason you would include a woman in someone's genealogy was to kind of validate the integrity of the line or maybe to prop it up. If the woman did some really incredible things, then you might give her a nod. But Matthew includes five women. And if he wanted to, you know, prop up Jesus and say, look at how incredible he is, he could have pointed to some different women than the women he chose. He could have gone to the great matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, women like that. Instead, Matthew, when he's trying to tell us where Jesus is coming from, what his family line is, he goes out of his way to include Tamar, the screaming, scheming, incestuous daughter-in-law, he chooses Rahab, who's a prostitute and a lie and a spy. He chooses Ruth, who's an outsider. She's probably the most, uh, the least morally dubious one of the bunch. And then he chooses Bathsheba, you know, whose life was attached to the greatest scandal and the life of the greatest man in the Old Testament. And of course, there's number five. Uh, there's Mary, who was an unwed teenage mom whose husband wanted to divorce her quietly. And so if you read this genealogy and you actually press in, it's very confusing. Why would Matthew do this? I mean, typically the reason you put a genealogy together was to prove someone's pedigree. Like for the Romans, they put all this energy into building genealogies to prove where they came from and even to pr prove that they had been descended from the gods. And Matthew puts this thing together and says, Looks like Jesus has come from some very dark and some very ugly background. And that day you would pass over, you'd edit out the shame and the disgraceful stories and you'd prop up all the good names and great people. And Matthew does the exact opposite. Matthew 1 Verses 23, he starts the genealogy. I want, I want you to feel what Matthew does here. He says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. 
he gets to this name and he doesn't speed up. He slows down. And by slowing down, and he does this with a number of the women that he mentions, it's almost like he wants to stop for a minute so that you remember the story we just talked about. And every Israelite would know that story and it would make them uncomfortable as you're talking about Jesus. So Jesus, the son of God has come and here's his lineage, Tamar. Matthew, he didn't have to include her. He chose to include her. And by going out of his way to include her, Matthew is trying to teach us something crucial, something critical about why Jesus came and the reason he was born into this world. Matthew is actually, for the original readers, they would read this and be disturbed. And it was a great, you know, it was a great device to use in writing because you're like, I got to read the rest of this book. What in the world? Why would he include these people? And the reason he included these people, the reason he included these women and gave them center stage is he's trying to show us that God loves to take people with the most messed up lives, with the most absurd and disgraceful stories and families. And he loves to forgive them, cleanse them, redeem them, and welcome them into his family. That's what Matthew's trying to communicate. One of the commentators put it like this. He says, one gets the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament until he could locate the most questionable liaisons possible in order to insert them into his record. And so finally, to preach the gospel, even in his genealogy. So Matthew says, I want to teach you about the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I'm going to show you it in the genealogy first. That our God is a God not who, you know, sanitizes or scrubs out all of the ugly or the messy, the darkness. Instead, he puts it center stage to show that our God's not afraid of the darkness, the disgrace, the shame, or the mess means we don't need to be afraid of the shame, the disgrace, the sin, and the mess. But God is very open about it, which means we can be very open about it. And there's this temptation that we face. We face it especially around Christmas. We, this temptation almost to sanitize the Bible and even to sanitize Christmas, right? We want to sentimentalize it. And that's not all bad. I love putting on the Christmas music and drinking hot cocoa and all of those things. But if we're not careful, it's so easy to lose the heart of why Jesus came in the midst of all of the sentimentality in this season. You guys tracking with me on that? Like this season, we often, you could say we Thomas Kincaid it. You guys know who Thomas Kincaid is? He was the painter of light. Um, if you don't know, he, he was this painter who created these super sentimental paintings that were filled with perfect light. There was not a thing out of place. I mean, everyone kind of glowed and everything in the paintings kind of glowed and there were a lot of pastels. And I think that's in our mind how a lot of us think about Christmas, or at least we want to think about Christmas. But I would say the reason Jesus came is more accurately reflected in Thomas Kincaid's life than in his paintings. Because if you know anything about his life, you know that while he was painting all these idyllic, uh, sentimental paintings, his life was filled with darkness, and he lived a very sad and tragic life. And just a couple years ago, he lost his life due to an ongoing battle with alcohol, with drugs, 
and pills. And when we think of Christmas and why Jesus came, we need to be thinking just as much about that as those paintings. Because Jesus Christ, he was born in a manger, a feeding trough, which most likely was a hole in the ground, which means that when God came to earth, he was born in the mud and in the muck so that he might step into the mud and the muck of our lives. Not avoid it, not recoil or turn his head from it, but get his hands dirty right in the middle of it so that he could cleanse us, heal us, and redeem us. That's the very meaning of Christmas. That's the message that while we were far from God, God drew near to us. And so what do we do with this? How do we, how do we bring this into our lives? Well, two things I want to hold before you before we close. Number one, I want you to see what Matthew does here, that God is telling you that he will not edit you out of his story on the basis of your sin, your shame, your disgrace. That contrary to the way a lot of people think about God, God doesn't look at people and say their lives are too messy, too jacked up, they're too sinful, so I want nothing to do with them. What we see in this story, he could have easily done that. Like, right, he could have, he could have got a Sharpie and highlighted some of these names right out of, out of his story. We're not going to talk about them. We're not going to include them. But instead, he puts them front and center. This should encourage us because, encourage us in honesty and in living honest lives. I think we all face temptations to hide and it. No time during the year is that temptation more strong than in the holiday seasons. Like in this season is a season where we feel like we got to be put together and we got to have it together. But if you talk to doctors, if you talk to therapists, you talk to counselors, they will tell you that this is the darkest time of the year. That people, their depression, their anxiety, it ramps up like crazy during this season that because of those things and more, people tend to press more into alcohol and pills and drugs, more into pornography, more into other unhealthy outlets. And I think we all feel this thing, like in this season, we'll just keep it together until the new year. Keep it together until January. And so we want to dress up. We want to act like we have it together. One of the big invitations of this text, the raw honesty of tomorrow's life and legacy is that we can come out of hiding and we don't have to have it all together. Martin Luther, he was writing on this text, it's tomorrow's story, and he speculated one of the reasons God gives us stories like these in the Bible, why he includes them. He says it's to challenge despair. And what he means is, if all the stories we had in the Bible about all the families in the Bible and the people in the Bible were all these people who were better than us in so many ways, we would read and think, gosh, this has nothing to say to me. But instead, we read the Bible and we think, you know, I'm not all that bad compared to most of these people. Like, I'm sinful just like they are, but if God can step into their mess and their sin, well, he could step into my mess and my sin as well. God doesn't edit. He doesn't edit those people out of his story, which means he can handle our sin which means you don't have to hide from him and you don't have to play games with him, which means you can go to him right now 
as you are. And some of you are bringing an awful lot in the room this morning, and you can take that to him as you are. I want to ask you a question. When was the last time you went to God in prayer with the kind of honesty that we see in this text? When was the last time you went before God and you were willing to just lay out what was going on in your heart with the kind of raw honesty that God lays out tomorrow's story for us? Because I think that reveals our understanding of the gospel And my fear is that so many of us, when we go to prayer, we turn on the prayer voice, right? We have the certain voice and we start, you know, reaching into the file of words that we tend to only use when we pray and we bring those things out and we formulate these prayers, but they're not honest prayers. And our God is saying, you can be honest with me. Look, I'll put this story front and center to show you, like you can bring it all before me and I'm not gonna be shocked And I'm not going to write you out because of the ugliness. I'm going to redeem the ugliness because that's what our God does. I mean, Tamar, Tamar in the book of Genesis, she's the girl nobody wanted and was just a problem. But in Matthew, we see that Tamar was the woman that God needed. And we see that she's not just remembered as the twice-widowed schemer who seduced her father-in-law, she's ultimately remembered as the first woman named in the genealogy of Jesus. In other words, if you don't have Tamar, you don't have Jesus. Now, I know some of you are uncomfortable with that. Could God do it another way? Absolutely, he could have, but he didn't. Think about that. Jesus got, none of us get to choose our family. A lot of us wish we could choose our family, you know, choose where we came from. Maybe growing up, you had families you looked at and thought, I wish I could be born to that family. You can't do that. You're stuck with your family. Jesus is the only person in history who got to choose his family. And he said, I think I want her front and center. That should be a word of encouragement to you. God will not edit us out of his story on the basis of our sin, shame, or disgrace. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, is what Hebrews 2 says, so we can go to him. And then the second call, and this is where I want to challenge you, especially if you're a believer going into this season, is that we must not edit other people out of God's story on the basis of their sin, their shame, or their disgrace. And in particular, I want to challenge us when it comes to our families. You know, Christmas, the season that's supposed to be filled with so much peace and joy, is usually filled with chaos and conflict. And for the overwhelming majority of us, at the heart of that chaos and conflict is family. And I know some of you have amazing families without any chaos and conflict, but you are very, very rare. If you're here and you're thinking, my family is so messed up, You are normal. I can tell you that after pastoring people for years. And what happens in this season, you kind of have to go deal with family that you haven't had to deal with for 11 months. You guys with me on that? But but you got to like, maybe there are things that you've been able to ignore for a long time that you can't ignore in this season. And my prayer for us is that we wouldn't just view it as a necessary evil to get through, but we would see it as an opportunity to step into. 
Some of you, <laughs> you just want to avoid it. And some of you, I swear, plan Christmas, and maybe I've been guilty of this. Like, we plan Christmas with extended family, especially the messy family, like the Navy SEALs plans an operation. You know what I mean? It's like, we're going to arrive at 0800. We're going to have coffee and cinnamon rolls. We're going to do presents by 10, and maybe we'll stay for hors d'oeuvres before lunch. And then we get out because we don't want to be there. And what we see is that God doesn't look at people with just these jacked up lives and say, you know what, I've had enough. And so neither should we. We learn that God, I mean, to put genealogy in modern day terms, it'd be like someone saying, tell me about your family. And you tell them about your transgendered uncle, your thrice divorced aunt, and your cousin who's a convicted felon who's getting out of the state pen in a year. And he, he includes it. And he says, yeah, that's my family. There they are. And I'm not going to distance myself from them. I'm going to include them. I'm going to prop them up right here in my story. And I wonder what it would look, look like for us to be those kinds of people as we consider this holiday season. You know, I want to be careful here. I'm not dismissing pain that family has caused you. And I'm not saying to step into really, really toxic situations with kind of a, a naivety that everything's going to be better. I'm also not saying that you're going to fix years of your family's dysfunction over a mug of hot cocoa. Uh, what I am saying is that you can go, you can be prayerful, and you can be present. And that you might not score a touchdown, but you can, you can move the ball forward just a little bit. Because that's who our God is. He doesn't withdraw from us. So let's not withdraw from the people in our lives who've got the most dysfunction. Let's press in. As we come to the Lord's table, we remember the body of Christ that was broken for us. We remember the blood of Christ that was shed for us. This is a reminder for us that Jesus came to cleanse us and to redeem us. It's a picture of a meal saying there's room for you at the table. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, Maybe you've had this image of God that God, you know, he's just demanding all of these things. He's demanding you get your life together. He's demanding that you deal with all this stuff. I hope what you see just from these texts is that our God says, no, you can come as you are and I'll redeem you and I'll cleanse you, but you can come as you are. And so if you're not in Christ, we encourage you to put your faith in him. He is the only hope that we have. If you are in Christ, I encourage you to come to this table and be reminded that Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And so we can be honest we can confess sins that we need to confess. We can repent of sinful habits and behaviors that have kind of grabbed hold of parts of our life. And we can move forward with hope into this season. Let me pray.